With the taboo against political violence seemingly under assault, what might a truly Christian stance on violence look like? And how do we maintain moral sanity and resist the danger of the collective we? What are the lessons we might learn from the White Rose Resistance Movement to National Socialism? I'm Susanna Black, Senior Editor at Plow. I'm Peter Momsen, Editor of the Plow Quarterly, and this is The Plowcast. When we're putting an issue of Plow together, we base it around a theme. This issue's theme is the violence of love, violence and nonviolence, justice and reconciliation. So there are some incredible articles in this issue. And the purpose of this six-part podcast, which we'll be putting out with every issue of Plow going forward, is to dig deeper into some of these pieces. Suzanne and I may some, find some things we agree about, and we'll definitely find some things we disagree about. We'll also bring on some guests. And uh, Susanna? <laughs> Make sure to follow us on your podcast service of choice. Look us up as The Plowcast. And with that, let's get to the conversation. Which will be uh, the issue of political violence and can violence be good? I suspect, Susanna, you and I have slightly different views about this. Uh, we do, although I think that probably the question of political violence, properly speaking, which is kind of what your uh, lead editorial hit on, we probably agree more closely. Um, so what your editorial started to dig into was this thing that has happened in the last, I don't know, 10 months or so, where it feels like this time last year, everyone was pretty uh, convinced, and we didn't even need to really talk about it that much, other than a couple of you know people on the mostly on the far left, some on the far right, um, that political violence, like extra state, you know, riots as a political tool was not something we were, that's, we, that was bad. And we didn't do that in the U.S. That was sort of something that happened when um, things were, ha had gotten out of hand to a degree that they had not gotten out of hand. And now, um, this time this year, it seems like both on the left and the right, that's no longer the case. We no longer have that agreement in society, in our culture. You know, it really does feel like the breaking of a taboo. So if you go back and, and just read accounts of social movements, um, even of, of anti-police brutality movements from a couple of years ago, there's a completely different tone. Uh, a very, what now comes across as a very staid anti-violence tone and then over the course of the last year, most noticeably, of course, over the summer after the horrible killing of George Floyd, you suddenly heard progressive journalists especially just joining in chorus in this uh, defense of violence. Um, of course, they didn't necessarily use that word, but many referred to Martin Luther King's uh, one-off line about riots being the language of the unheard. And uh, seemingly very embarrassed, though, about his uncompromising commitment to nonviolence. And I would say not unrelatedly by his commitment to Christianity. Um, and so that occasioned a lot of jeering by people on the right. We heard uh, lots of people making fun of the sort of mostly peaceful protest line that was in mainstream media. And yet, of course, on the right, um, bad things were going on, too, ramping up and culminating in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, uh, which wasn't defended possibly in the same terms, but there did seem to be a lot more comfort with the idea 
uh, of groups kind of taking violently taking control of, of public areas on the right than you would have seen a year or two ago either. So the breaking of the taboo, and I don't think it's, it's necessarily interesting for our podcast today, Susanna, to try to say who's more at fault or uh, where's the blame to lie. But what I find really interesting is the mainstreaming of the idea that violence can sometimes be good, especially if it's our side, you know, that's throwing the Molotov cocktails or breaking windows or even punching police officers. Yeah. Um, and I think that, like, it, it felt as though it were you were watching it, or at least I felt as though I was watching it, that change happen in in real time and with a kind of speed and confusion that was just outstandingly interesting. Um but of course, the breaking of this taboo and the passing of it made me think, you know, maybe we didn't appreciate enough what it meant that our society for a number of decades, at least, kind of joined together in this civic religion of nonviolence and this, you know, kind of easy to mock universalism, I have a dream speech um, idea that really nonviolent protest um, appeals to the good and the heart of the other were kind of the American way, at least post-civil rights movement. And of course, that was always a bit of a fairy tale, but it was a pretty powerful fairy tale. Um, now that it's fallen apart, I think it's worth looking at what grounded it in the first place and getting back to that. And of course, for King, that was the gospel. Uh, that was a very specifically Christian vision. And I think it's worth pointing out that with the falling of this taboo, it's actually the falling of a kind of Christian achievement that, that we're losing or have lost. And maybe that's, that's too pessimistic. Maybe it'll come back. But right now, it looks like it's teetering. I would say that Dr. King, as a kind of avatar of the best of American civil religion, um, I don't think we appreciated that enough when we had it. And I feel like it is, it has this past year kind of gone away um on a number of levels and i mean I, I would we we don't really have a huge we could probably argue about this but we don't really have a huge legacy of um classical political theology that's speaking into american life like most of the founders didn't you know didn't read aquinas the possible except, exception of james wilson um but you know we had in Martin Luther King, a kind of American Thomism um, and American Augustinianism, but like even the basic idea that um, an unjust law is no law at all, or that, you know, the positive law ought to match a kind of higher law, like those two ideas, which are kind of at the core of um, Christian understanding of law, came to America, came, you know, came to our kind of contemporary normie, everyone kind of agrees on this, um, vision of what America was, not primarily through Dr. King, but he certainly was the one who articulated it most clearly and who knew what he was doing when he was articulating it. What I've been wondering about, because of course, nonviolence was always based on something deeper, right, in King's vision. And it was based on a willingness to suffer wrong out of love, to illustrate through the acceptance of wrong, of injustice, you know, whether it's being 
you know, hosed down while you're marching for voting rights or beaten over the head while you're desegregating a a lunch counter, you're accepting wrong in order to illustrate that it is wrong, right? And there's a a kind of injustice to that, and it and you can understand why there'd be a reaction, and there was in his day, and we saw that doubly over the last year. There's a reaction. You know, we're not going to take that. You know, there, it's we shouldn't be expected to love those who are our enemies. It's unfair to expect us to accept abuse. Um, it's unfair to accept that somebody who's fighting for justice um, can be put in a situation where they're actually physically being hurt. We should be able to hate in that situation. We should be able to not yield. We should be able to fight back. That, those seems like very natural reactions. And that's why, you know, you mentioned um, Aquinas and this kind of natural law, classical theology tradition. It was interesting to me to, to, to notice that the virtue of meekness is linked by Aquinas with the virtue of magnanimity, both of which um, kind of have to do with an act of self-restraint, of self-mastery, of, of self-abnegation. Um, and those are things that are, are never popular and actually don't make a lot of sense outside of a Christian worldview. And in that sense, like the the self-control and the kind of trained self-control, there were like elaborate trainings that like the kids who desegregated lunch counters went through to help them um, not respond with, you know, with the kind of lashing out that would be natural. Um, that kind of training in self-mastery and self-rule I think is something that um, it, it's a very different way of understanding meekness than just thinking of it as being wimpy or passive. It's almost the opposite. Um, and I think that, you know, pacifism in the sense, you know, that Dr. King advocated it is something that is so profoundly opposite to passivity um, and to a kind of like weakness. It's, it's, it's a primary strength. Um, and I think that like, obviously the, the highest version of this is, is Christ going to the cross and the nature of the cross as a kind of battle, um, which is the way that it's been portrayed, you know, since the beginning, Jesus won a victory. It was like, he won a, a quasi physical victory as a warrior by controlling himself and by accepting um accepting pain um and interposing his body in between us and the danger that we faced the way that a king would on on the battlefield it takes a kind of transformation of the imagination to see nonviolence as as something that comes from a place of strength rather than a place of weakness but i think we kind of need to so i have a question uh susanna I'm speaking, you know, I come from an Anabaptist tradition where we think nonviolence is the way taught by Jesus, the way he lived, the way uh, his Sermon on the Mount um, lays out for us, love your enemy, um, accept the second blow, do what you're asked for, don't fight back. Uh, the, the way the, the gospel is incompatible with killing, 
And that's a pretty bright line for people coming from the Anabaptist tradition. But that is, I'm very aware, not the mainstream of, of Christianity, at least for the last 1,600 years. Although I and we would argue that that was the mainstream of Christianity for his first few hundred years. And uh, in a way that's kind of uncomfortable for people who want to get away from nonviolence. So I guess my question is, and this is lining up, it seems actually a little arrogant and inconsistent for Christians who have carved out all kinds of exceptions to nonviolence for themselves to go and ask people fighting for justice to accept nonviolence in ways that Christians haven't really been consistent about, even for people within the church. And we're asking people who are secular, who don't even believe necessarily that meekness is a good thing, that the Beatitudes even are an accurate portrayal of how human beings should be. We're asking them to be nonviolent. What, what, how does that work? <laughs> Thanks for putting me on the spot there, Pete. Yeah, well, you know, that's what we're here for. So I guess there's there are two ways into this. And one is that, the, like, as I said at the beginning, I think that political violence, um, as we've seen it today, like as we've seen it in the last year, um, I would distinguish from, like, state use of force. Um, violence being a word that, like, carries a moral judgment within itself like it's a violation so like the argument would be and i know how to make these arguments even though i go back and forth in my head as to how convinced i am by them <clears throat> but the argument would be that um you know the state is or the 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 magistrate is given the the use of the sword in romans 13 and he's given the use of the sword for the good of the community, not for its ill. And therefore that would be, you know, one of these areas of, you know, Christians have carved out an okay use of violence for themselves that you would criticize. But, um, you know, the, the sort of response would be, well, we're told that, you know, the magistrate's job here is something that God blesses, that this is like something that if, if the magistrate weren't doing that job, he would actually be disobeying um, God's purpose for him in that role. And therefore, like, how could, how can you say that it would be wrong for a Christian to be a magistrate? Um, if a magistrate can be obeying God by using the sword towards public justice. Um, but that is a different thing than private citizens taking it on themselves to be vigilantes. Um, so there is like a strong distinction between vigilantism and um, public justice, which we ought to see a kind of perspective, like taste of, in a weird way, God's own judgment in the in the in the last judgment in even though that's a scary thing to think about. Right. It just it still seems yeah, to me that yeah. that for Christians to wring their hands and say, oh, terrible uh, protesters a acting in rage mm -hmm. when 
we ourselves essentially have gutted the Sermon on the Mount when it comes to questions of the use of force um, is, you know, seems seems strange. Um, I suspect, though, and we're not going to we're not going to figure this out right now. Right. But over the course of this uh, series of six podcasts, we're going to return to some of these questions of pacifism, of the use of force, the role of the state, um, participating in policing, participating in the military, self-defense. Because I think these things really are connected. And I think what's amazing to get back to Martin Luther King is that he really did have a vision of a kind of nonviolence that went beyond that, that was so generous, right? Um, you know, thinking of meekness as a kind of mirror of magnanimity, nonviolence that was so generous that it sort of embraced everyone. And that's really what um, allows the beloved community uh, to come into being. And of course, King, as, as a kind of theological liberal, is really seeing this as a society-wide thing, not as something that's happening in some narrow Christian sectarian group, right? The beloved community is not tiny. The beloved community is expansive, and it's for everyone. In between the two segments of our podcast, uh, we're thinking we're going to do a little intermezzo, so to speak, where we talk a little bit about our lives and the communities that we're part of. From my side, I'm part of the Fox Hill Bruderhof community in upstate New York. And Susanna, uh, you're downstate from me. I am downstate. Um, don't hold it against me. And one of the things you do, Susanna, is you kind of help hold together the wider plow community. So all the different organizations and people and contributors and writers and doers um, that are somehow part of the living network that we kind of aim to help build and nurture through this magazine. Normally, the way that I do that is by hanging out with people. And now that we can't really do that, um, I found myself on Twitter, maybe even a little more than I had normally been on Twitter, which was already kind of a lot. Um, and one thing that happened yesterday, uh, I will say in the broader plow community, because there's no reason not to say that, is that um, Zena Hitz, who's a teacher at um, St. John's College, the Great Books College in Annapolis, who's a sort of friend of the pod, Zena Hitz, I will say, or at least she's not an enemy of the pod and she will be a friend of the pod, um, has gotten into this strange Twitter friendship with MC Hammer. Um, who has, you know, in maybe over COVID, started getting really interested in philosophy. Zena Hitz is a philosophy professor. So Zena and MC Hammer have been going back and forth on Twitter, sort of delving into various questions about um, the proper kind of um, use of science, whether science is a more adequate way of describing reality than philosophy or whether they're complementary. And apparently, I found out found this out yesterday. Zena and MC Hammer are going to be co-hosting a clubhouse hangout uh, in a, in a clubhouse room, this new um, social media app, Clubhouse, on Friday at 10 p.m. Eastern. So while I normally would like go into Manhattan and hang out with friends, uh, I am going to be sort of clubhousing in. I just downloaded this app to hang out with MC Hammer and Xena to talk about philosophy on Friday. Um, now, you guys can't do that because this will have already happened by the time we put this podcast out. But presumably, you know, here's hoping it will be the first of several Xena hits MC Hammer crossover, like moments of bizarreness. And 
Pete and I are going to, once I convince Pete to get an iPhone, um, be doing Clubhouse Hangouts of our own. So keep your eyes open for that. Yeah, it's going to be need, fun. Yeah. You know, that thing with, with uh, Xena and MC Hammer is just going to be great. And I can't wait to hear about it. Um, I'm trying to resist like the you can't touch this kind of joke at this point. There are so many. There have been so many. The place where I live in Walden, New York is Foxhill Bruderhof. So imagine a village of about 250 people with a furniture factory and a school and a medical clinic and a plow publishing house, which is where we're based out of. Uh, we all live together. We share everything in common. And it's been great having you, Susanna, up here very often. And many of our Plow friends and contributors come up here. We can't wait till we can do more of that in-person stuff. What I want to talk about today, though, has to do with an article from The Issue. So one of the articles that we'll be talking about in a later segment of this podcast is on the story of the Bruderhof and Conscious Objection. Uh, and it focuses on the life of one guy, uh, Jakob Gneiding, who happens to be a my neighbor, and how he kind of lived through this whole story of conscientious projection and, and the Bruderhof. But that's not what I'm talking about now. Um, Jakob and his wife, Juliana, is this wonderful, wonderful woman, uh, Paraguayan, he married down there, are going to be celebrating their 64th wedding anniversary. And tonight we're going to get together and we're going to do two things that Bruderhof people like to do a lot. We're going to sing um, German folk songs, German love songs, and we're going to do a Feuert song in Bula, which, Suzanne, I think you're familiar <laughs> oh with. Oh, my gosh. Okay, well, now we should get on to uh, the topic that we're really here to talk about in the second half of our podcast. Let's talk about the White Rose. Susanna, how, when did you first hear about the White Rose? Um, I think that I did not know about them before I started working for Plow. And then um, I think probably maybe the first time I went up and visited and I don't know, you know, Sam was probably like, go look on the shelves and grab any books that look interesting to you. Um, we have, I don't think that I have a copy of it right near my desk, <clears throat> but we have... Um, one of the older books, I don't know when it was originally published, I guess not that long ago, like three years ago or something like that, um, At the Heart of the White Rose, is a um, book that sort of uses letters and diary entries and various other documents to tell the story of this uh, Christian student group that um, ended up sort of uh, creating, as, as Pete said, I I think of them as the original Antifa or Antifa or however you want to pronounce it, except that like, if you know about them, it's like bizarre to think of them that way, but it is entirely accurate. It, they were a student group um, who organized themselves under basically under student leadership, although they had this one professor who is uh, helping them out to distribute, to compose and distribute pamphlets um, arguing against Nazism and calling for um, passive resistance and various kinds of um, non-cooperation. Um, and I've found them to be, for various reasons, just an incredible inspiration. Um, and actually, when Anne and I were first talking about starting the Breaking Ground Project, um, the original conversation that we had had about 
Like, I think the original conversation that Anne and I ever had was about the White Rose because I was like so obsessed with them. And I kind of still am. I mean, I definitely still am. Um, It's a little bit annoying to my friends, I'm sure. Anyway, so yeah, you should all uh, get very excited for the graphic novel version of uh, the White Rose story that we are releasing any minute now. It's called Freiheit, i.e. Freedom. There's been some great reviews from Kirkus and... uh library journal and and so forth about the book. So we really are excited about it. You know, one thing about the White Rose, and of course this doesn't really come out with a graphic novel, is just how deeply grounded they were as students in the spiritual and humanist traditions of of the West, basically, and how that um, nourished their their courage uh, in a way that I, I think is easy to to miss nowadays when you think of anti-fascism. You don't necessarily think of people who quote Schiller, right? Yeah, and Goethe. Um, yeah, that's kind of one of the things that really strikes me about them because they they thoroughly knew what they were doing in terms of um, they didn't just have a kind of inchoate or even traditional liberal democratic um, idea of why what Hitler was doing was wrong. They had this very deep love of Germany, and they felt like there's one of the pamphlets in particular. Actually, I think it's the first one, um, which is the one where they quote Schiller and Goethe. It's it's really like they're calling Germany back to itself, um, where they we are your bad conscience. We will not let you rest. And it's on that it's in that basis that they are that that they're opposing Hitler, who they see as like you know, basically a parasite on this country um, that they love so much. And then the other pamphlet three, which is, um, you know, the one that I kind of uh, more obsessed with, you know, I'm, I've actually gotten a, I've got a quote here, uh, if I can find it. Um, They're just extremely aware of the arguments they're making against Hitler. Well, okay, I'm just going to read this. It starts out, Salus Publica Suprema Lex, so the, the public... Um, health is the highest law, public good is the highest law. And they start out, all ideal forms of government are utopias. A state cannot be designed strictly theoretically. It must grow mature just as an individual person will. However, one may not forget that at the beginning of every civilization, a prototype of the form of government existed. The family is so old, old as mankind itself, that out of this initial communal being, the logic endowed, or, or it would be logos endowed, um, man created a state whose foundation would be justice, whose greatest law, the good of all. The state represents an analogy of the divine order. The greatest of all utopias, the civitas dei, is the model it seeks to emulate. We do not wish to pass judgment on all the various forms of government, democracy, constitutional monarchy, monarchy, etc. However, one thing should be accentuated clearly and plainly. Every individual human being has the right to a useful and just state that guarantees the freedom of the individual as well as the common good. For mankind must be able to attain his natural goal, his temporal happiness, in self-reliance and autonomy. This pursuit of happiness should take place free and unencumbered in association and collaboration with the national community in accordance with God's will. That is like, that is the, the wildest collection of classical ideas and kind of gestures towards um, 20th century, more more liberal democratic 20th century ideas that I 
have ever read. Like, I love that passage because they are doing something there that is so kind of, they're doing exactly what they need to be doing um, in making the argument against what Hitler is doing. And they go on in that, in that um, pamphlet, and we'll link to it in the show notes, to make the case that Hitler is a classical tyrant and he should be overthrown as a tyrant for reasons that Aquinas would recognize. And of course, you know, these weren't just interesting arguments that they were making, which would have been fascinating in and of itself, given how many others, how few others, I should say, thought as they did in their generation and in their milieu, right? It was, it took a kind of tremendous um, intellectual courage and and willingness to be kind of lonely. Um, if you think of the kind of enthusiasm for Hitler's regime that you know, really was pretty widespread uh, among their their university fellows. So they not only kind of stood apart in that way, but they were literally willing to to, to die um, for it. And I think that's um, a kind of level of anti-fascism, of actually love for for the others and in one society that you know maybe brings us a little bit back to the first thing we were talking about. Um, uh, of what does it mean truly to love our enemies, our neighbors? Um, so check out the book. It's super moving. And, and what we're really hoping for this book is that, like any graphic novel, it actually serves as a gateway to getting as passionate about the White Rose as uh, Susanna is. The pamphlets are actually reprinted at the end. So just FYI, if you're looking to get your hands on... Uh, the White Rose pamphlets. There they are. At the conclusion of this episode of The Plowcast, we're going to give you some recommendations. Susanna, do you want to start? Sure. Um, so what I am recommending is an article by John Baskin, friend of the pod, John Baskin, um, who's also the editor of The Point magazine. Great magazine. This is an article in the New York Review of Books called The Unbearable Towards an Anti-Fascist Aesthetic. It covers um, Karl Ove Nausgaard's, which I have no idea if I pronounced that right, um, six-volume um, sort of detailed, strange, novelistic autobiography called My Struggle, and also the um, Terrence Malick um, movie, A Hidden Life. And he's talking about, um, it ties into the questions that we've been talking about about the White Rose. Um, he attempts to look at what the appeal of the aesthetic appeal of um, national socialism was and what we should be rejecting when we reject Nazism and, w and what we shouldn't be rejecting. So for example, like, is it in fact fascist to love small German villages? And um, Baskin is kind of going to make the case that, no, they're actually beautiful things that were stolen and appropriated and, and misused by um, the Nazi regime, even the sort of aesthetic tools of Nazism that we should not allow to remain stolen, but we should take back. It's a great article and well worth reading. And it certainly inspired me to finally watch that Terrence Malick film about Franz Jägerstetter, uh, the Catholic martyr who died because he refused to serve in Hitler's army. So I want to also kind of go to that part of the world, to small villages in Czechia, uh, where Dvorak, the composer, Antonin Dvorak, uh, wrote his Stabat Mater. So we're in the middle of Lent, and 
the Sabbat Mater is probably one of my favorite pieces of music, set, definitely at this time of year. Uh, it's this 20 stanza medieval Franciscan poem uh, imagining the suffering of Mary at the foot of the cross. Dvorak wrote his, it's the, I think the longest setting of it in classical music, uh, between the ages of 35 and 37, uh, during which time he lost first a little baby and then his oldest daughter who died of poisoning and then a month later his three-year-old son of smallpox. And so you can imagine uh, that sounds extremely grim, but I assure you that this piece is anything but, and it's one of the most gorgeous ways to prepare um, for this time of Lent and Holy Week. We're going to put a link to one of the, my favorite recordings into the notes. Thanks for listening, and we sure hope you'll be back for our next episode, which will appear uh, next week in our six-part series on the violence of love, violence and nonviolence. Uh, we'll then uh, be talking about should Christians be pacifists, and we'll be talking about Antifa and the violence we saw in Portland uh, with some on-the-ground reporting from Patrick Tomasi. See you next week.